All right, if you would, open your Bibles. We're looking, um, going all the way back in the Old Testament to the book of Joshua. It's on, uh, we're looking at the first nine verses of chapter one. It's on page 178 of your pew Bible. Or you can just follow along in your bulletin. There we go. Um, we're in our sermon series titled Promises of God. And today, God, we see that God says to his people, I will be with you. And because of this, God's people are to be strong and, and courageous in, in how we live for him. It's a message not just for Joshua's day, it's a message for God's people today, isn't it? Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us this little snapshot of your servant, um, Joshua. Uh, May we see in him uh, more fully what we have come to know in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may our lives be transformed by the reading and study and meditating upon this word, because your spirit dwells in your people. We thank you and praise you. Amen. Can any one of you tell me the name of the president who followed Abraham Lincoln, or the prime minister who followed Winston Churchill? Good luck, right? Highly successful leaders often cast a long shadow over whoever succeeds them. Successors are generally obscured by those who came before them. Now, with this in mind, could you imagine following on the heels of Moses? Talk about casting a long shadow. But Joshua did just that. And when we study the life of Joshua we'll see uh, that what is brought to the light is that Joshua himself was a remarkable man. Here's what Philip Keller wrote about Joshua. He says, He has seldom been given the full credit he deserves as perhaps the greatest man of faith ever to set foot on the stage of human history. 
In fact, his entire brilliant career was a straightforward story of simply setting down one foot after another in quiet compliance with the commands of God. Joshua played a unique role in redemptive history. He was called to succeed Moses as the leader of the nation. And his monumental task was to lead the people of God into the promised land, a place that was inhabited by powerful, well-fortified, and wicked nations. Could you imagine the weight of that command? Could you imagine how overwhelming the responsibility was? Can you imagine the fear and and the anxiety and the, and the trepidation. I'm sure you kind of can. We, we all, in, in some ways, have gone through times of, uh, that have caused us to be fearful, times in which anxiety comes upon us, though perhaps never overwhelmed to the degree to which Joshua was in his day. We know what that is like, don't we? There's much in life that causes us to be frightened and dismayed. But the children of God are to stand strong and be courageous. And not because of some special powers or abilities that are innate in us, but because of what God promises Joshua here. God promises Joshua that he will be everywhere present with him. God commands Joshua to go into the promised land, but he also assures him of the key to his success. He says, I will be with you. I will not forsake you. What we'll see this morning with this quick foray into the life of Joshua is that God has great and glorious plans for his people in all times and places. And yes, they can be challenging and scary at times, but yet they are wonderful plans and they're plans for which we are called to live out. And as we do, he will not leave us or forsake us. He will be with us wherever we go. The point we will see is this, that Christian, God has promised to be with you as you live for him, and therefore we are to be strong and courageous. We're going to divide that time that we look at this into three areas. First, we're going to look at the command, then the promises, and then the character. The command is given in verse 2, but prior to verse 2, we need to take a quick look at verse 1. Right after Moses dies, Yahweh, that's the Lord, speaks to Joshua. Moses had been... Uh, the Lord's servant, and Joshua was Moses' assistant. He was Moses' assistant for a long time. He began when he was really young. You remember that, that Joshua and Caleb, they were the two of the twelve who went into the promised land 40 years prior to, to spy it out, to see what was going on there, because God had promised it to Moses. And, and they go in, and, and uh, Caleb and Joshua come back, and they say, you know what, there's some pretty big people, they're pretty strong, but I know we can do this. But then there was the ten others who came back and said, oh yeah, you're right, it is a beautiful place, but we have no shot of beating these people. We better just stay in the wilderness. And, and because of their unbelief, that's where they stayed uh, for, for uh, at least 40 years. A whole generation of faithless people perished in the wilderness because they would not listen to God and go in to the promised land. Moses now has died. And now Joshua is the one who's called to, to lead them in. And, and, you know, God wasted no time with Joshua. He, he gave Joshua no time to, like, collect his thoughts, you know, and, and uh, let things settle in before he does anything monumental, right? You know, you think maybe, it's, you know, start maybe with some small initiatives, right? You know, so, you know, how about we just, like, get, like, vending machines for each tribe? We'll start there, you know, we'll see what we can do there. And, um, 
And you guys, uh, you guys remember what happened when George W. Bush took over the White House, right? His staff had a hard time getting up and going. They had to, to kick in for a little while and, and, uh, before they could really get down to business. You remember what happened? The, the, uh, the Bill Clinton's staffers had taken all of the W keys off of the keyboard of every computer in the White House. So uh, they had a little bit of time before they actually got down to business. But um, Yahweh, the Lord, offers Joshua no time whatsoever. He gives Joshua a gargantuan command in verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. This command reveals uh, at least three important truths about God. The first is this. God is content to see his plan unfold over multiple generations. He is in no hurry. The original promise of the land was given to Abraham 400 years before, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then to Moses. They've all passed away. You know, you and I crave instant fulfillment, don't we? Even in, in areas of spiritual matters. You know, many of you have signed up for our grace teams, and that's great. And perhaps, perhaps you, you sign up for a team, and you really can't wait to get the team going because you've got great ideas, and, and, you're, and you really feel like you're going to take the world on fire by being a part of this team. I hope that's true. I hope that's a reality. Um, but oftentimes, God unfolds his plans slowly over time. Consider this. Say you sign up to be a part of the GROW team. This is where we do discipleship here in the church. This means that you're committing to disciple someone for multiple years. It's, a, it's not a quick process. But imagine this. Picture this. Say you disciple somebody for a number of years, and that person goes and disciples somebody else, and that person disciples somebody else, and so on and so on for a hundred years. You could be dead in 10 years, but think about the prosperity of the ministry that you had been faithful to undertake. God is not in a hurry to bring about his plans. Another important truth we see is that God's commands are gracious. Sometimes it's harder to see in other passages than this one, but here we see that God's commands are gracious. There's always some sort of gift of his grace that goes with his commands. In verse 2, Yahweh says, uh, go into the land I am giving them. The Hebrew word is natan. It means to give. The land of Canaan is God's gift to his people. He alone was the giver. It was by his power and might that the Israelites were to receive this gift and conquer the land. It was all done because of his gracious promise to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. The land of promise is a gift of God's grace. If you know the story of the Israelites up until this point, you know that they were not deserving of the land. And yet God, because he's faithful to his covenant promises, to his his love towards his people, he gives them the land of promise. God's commands also require our obedience. Did you see that in verse 2? God promises the land... But the people must take it for themselves. Once again, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. In other words, get off the couch. Get organized. And then he says, go. You've got to move out in order to obtain this gift. You've got to go over the Jordan. You and all of these people. Yeah, there's a million of them. You've got to go into the land that I'm giving them to the people of Israel. 
Imagine if somebody gave you a check for $10,000. What would you do with it? Would you frame it and mount it on a wall? No, that would be silly and foolish. So too the promises of God. Joshua was given a check for the promised land. It's up to him and his people to go into Canaan and cash it. You know, many Christians will say, you know what, I can't really do anything. I'm, I'm waiting on the Lord. And, and, and it's good to wait on the Lord. I'm not saying don't wait on the Lord. But is it not also possible that, that he is waiting on you to arise and go and receive the gifts that he is for his people? That's the command. I have a gift for you and my people. Now go and get it. Cash the check. That's the command. Now for the promise, or rather the promises. You know, I think we'd all like to think that if we were in Joshua's shoes, that, that we would have risen right away, called all the people together, encouraged them and challenged them, and, and headed right off the very next day into the promised land and obeying this command. But this command was no small task. This was the mobilization of millions of people into a huge land full of wicked people who were bent on killing every last Jew who entered the land. So actually, I think you'd be frightened and dismayed. You would not feel strong or courageous. See, this command is just too overwhelming. But God knows this. He knows Joshua's heart. He knows that Joshua needs assurance. And so God gives him three promises meant to assure him of success. God unreservedly commits to three things. First, to give the land all of it. Second, to overcome their enemies, all of them. And third, to be with Joshua always. In verse 3, God assures Joshua that he'll give him the land, all of it. Verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. God's going to great lengths here to assure Joshua that that even though Moses is dead, things are going to continue on. He keeps saying, you know, just as it was with Moses, right? He's reassuring him. Things haven't changed. This promise to Moses stands. When you get to Canaan, everywhere you step, that will have been given to you. Do you notice the past tense here? That's the same Hebrew word in the Tan, to give, but it's, a, it's, it's, um, in, the, it's in the perfect uh, tense, which means it's, it's a completed event. In the eyes of God, this is already a done event, right? Wherever he puts his foot, that will be a place for the people of God. What a, what a word of assurance for, for Joshua. And then verse 4, Yahweh promises to overcome their enemies, all of them. He gives this huge swath of land in which all these people live. He says, from the wilderness of this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No longer will all this land be other people's territories. It shall be yours. The, the scope of this promised land is, is enormous. Um, one commentator makes this observation. He says, in terms of the current political boundaries... The promised land would thus cover modern Israel, the whole of Jordan, a large part of Saudi Arabia, half of Iraq, uh, the whole of Lebanon, part of Syria, and the whole of Kuwait. <laughs> the promised land is it's huge. God mentions the Hittites, but, but in mentioning them, in one way, he's just mentioning all the rest of the people in the land. But I also think something's interesting 
about just mentioning the Hittites. You know, it was in Hittite territory where Abraham and Sarah were buried. Abraham, 400 years before, had the promise that this will be your land. And so what did he do? When Sarah died, he went to the Hittites and he bought a burial uh, a plot for, for he and for his family. And both he and his wife Sarah were buried there. I think what God is saying, he's saying, he's saying to Joshua, he's saying, I'm fulfilling my promise. I'm giving the land to Abraham as I had promised him. And, and I'm promising over his grave. Thirdly, God assures Joshua with the promise to be with Joshua always. We see this in verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. You know, of all the promises that God gives Joshua here, this is the clincher. This is the one uh, that, that really uh, has the greatest import. Joshua says, I, or God says, I will be with you. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means I will not forsake you, right? He's adding the emphasis there. Not only will I be with you, but I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. Just as I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. This is the, the promise that undergirds everything uh, that God has said here so far. You remember when God threatened to withdraw his presence from the Israelites because of the, because of the golden calf? And you remember how Moses pleaded eloquently and, and persuasively that if God were to desert his people, they would lose everything that was distinctive about them. And what was it that makes Israel unique? God isn't just God up there. God is God down here in the midst of his people. And if God were to take that away, Israel would cease to be Israel. Israel would cease to be distinctive. What makes the people of God unique is God in their midst. Now, Joshua and the nation were given a Herculean command. It's a command that would literally be impossible for the people of God to fulfill in their own strength and in their own might. But God inspires confidence. He says, I will be with you. Now, this is not a hollow promise. This isn't kind of like what we say to people. You know, I'll be with you in spirit. <laughs> you know, I'll be watching over you. No, when God says that he will be with Joshua, he says, I'm going to be in the midst of you, in the midst of all of the challenges that you have. Um, uh, God is saying that he will be Joshua's power and strength. God is giving the land to the Israelites, but it is God who will powerfully ensure that everything comes to pass. Joshua, though, must demonstrate something. What is that? It's character. God is concerned for Joshua's character. It will take a certain type of personal character to obey the command of God. Joshua must be strong and courageous. I, I don't know if you picked up on that. It's kind of a recurring theme, you know. Uh, verse 6, and verse 7, and verse 9. Be strong and courageous. Now, when we hear words like be strong and courageous, doesn't it kind of sound like a, like a 
pep talk, you know, like a coach before the game saying, all right, boys, we've got this. Just be strong and courageous. Is is that what God is doing here? Just giving him a little pep talk? No, God isn't giving Joshua a pep talk. Go be strong and courageous and you can do it. No, God focuses on two things. He's basically saying, do these two things and you will have every reason to be strong and courageous. What are they? The first is, root your hope in my will. And the second is, root your habits in my ways. Where do we see that? First one comes in verse 6. He says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. God is saying, place your hope in my will. Place your hope in my plan. I swore this to your forefathers, so don't you think that I'm not going to bring it about? You see, when your plans are God's plans, you should have great confidence in the success of those plans, right? Does that make sense? When you live for God's will to be done, when you live for God's good purposes for his people on this planet, you should be hopeful. And where there is hope, there is strength and courage. God says to Joshua and to us, he says, root your hope in my will. And this hope will cause you to be strong and courageous. God also says, root your habits in my ways. For then too you will have cause for courage. We see this in verse 7 and 8. We could spend a lot of time here, but we're... Really not going to, but he says, only be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to the, all the law of Moses, my servant commanded you. Do not turn uh, to the right or to the left, uh, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law, uh, that's the, the first five books of the Bible. That's all that they had back then. Uh, um, that shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. You know, don't you find it interesting that God has commanded Joshua to undergo a huge military campaign, and yet God's instructions here have nothing to do with military matters? Though there will be many battles to be fought, the key to success is spiritual. Their success was directly related to Joshua and his people being rooted in the ways of God rather than in military might. God's going to do the work. It takes a certain type of character that he works through. You know, we live in a world where success and morals are mutually exclusive. You know, if you want to be successful, well, then you have to kind of cut some corners morally, right? Um... And guess what? This mindset isn't anything new. It was prevalent in Joshua's day as well. But what God is saying to Joshua is what he's saying. He's saying, my priority isn't the land over and against the moral character of my people. Nor is the moral character of my people over and against the importance of my people being in the land. What is he saying? He's saying, my priority is both. They're inextricably linked together. Both commands hinge on each other. 
Success will only be achieved when Joshua and the people both obey God's will to enter the land and walk according to his ways. Why? I hope you see this. What's God's plan for the ancient Israelites? What's his plan for his people? His plan is that his people would inhabit this land. And, And as they lived there, their very lives, their community, how they conducted themselves would be a portrait of God's redeeming grace and how he transforms people to be more and more in, into his image. And so the surrounding nations, yes, uh, yes, the Israelites were to um, depose the, 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 the nations that were in the land currently. Trust me, the, these nations were, were evil. They were vile. Um, they were deserving God's judgment. Uh, and they were to be um, thoroughly eradicated from the land. But understand this, that the, the surrounding nations were to experience the blessings of God through the people of God. That promise that Abraham, God gave to Abraham that his, uh, his uh, nation will be a blessing to the families of the world was to come through these people. And, and so here's what should have taken place in the surrounding nations. Conversations like this in the, in the lands around. Somebody's saying, you know, have you ever done business with the Israelites? I mean, their craftsmen are so skilled. They pay such attention to detail. They give you a higher quality product than you really need. And, and when you buy grain from them, They never cheat you. They use honest scales. (laughs) They're trustworthy. And you know, they say they worship the one true God. Could that be true? He dwells with them. Can we come to know this God in some way? You see that? That's God's purposes for his people in the land, was was, was be a microcosm of his grace that's coming to the world. The people in the land must reflect the character of God himself. And that comes from knowing and walking in the ways of God. Do not turn to the, to the right or to the left. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. It's to be meditated upon day and night. What does this mean? Well, I know, I know uh, in modern America, that when we hear meditation, you know, uh, in Eastern philosophy or religious approach to meditation seems to be in our minds what 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 meditation is and and the, you know the eastern approach is you know emptying your mind uh or focusing inward on oneself or or both of those but um with biblical meditation the focus isn't inward it's upward and it's and the activity is not an emptying of oneself of any thoughts but filling oneself with the words and the in the thoughts of of god above see it's when you meditate on god's word that, that they get pressed deep into your character and and uh, you can remember his words for many many years to come now i'm going to apologize for what I'm about to say here, um, but this is before I was a Christian. There was a night when, uh, my, my daughter's here, she's going to enjoy this. There was a night when I was at a party, and I guess I was a little bored, and I looked at a, uh, a bottle of a Budweiser beer, not Bud Light, Budweiser, and on the bottle, there's like this, this saying that's in the label, and maybe, yeah, you're, no one knows what I'm talking about, but there's this saying, and it's kind of like a mantra or a quality assurance thing that, that, that is there, and... Um, I took like half an hour and I memorized it. And, and I still know it. <laughs> this is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no other brand produced by any other brewer which costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beechwood aging 
produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you will find in no other beer at any price. That was 30 years ago. I memorized that. And it's still stuck inside my head. Some of you are going to buy Budweiser tonight, aren't you? All right. I'll take a bottle, please. No, don't pour it in a yeah, glass. All right. How much more should we meditate on the Word of God, my friends? To know it, to delight in it, to press it deep inside, to have it memorized so that when, so that when we need it, it's there. To strengthen us, to give us courage. God is telling Joshua and us that when we commit to walking in God's ways, you can become strong and courageous. It's not just enough to know God's will, my friends. We must walk in his ways. And what is it that, that God says will happen when we, we, we pursue God's will and walk in his ways? Text says success. End of verse 7. That you may have good success wherever you go. End of verse 8. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, some take this promise too far. They say, well, if I live a good Christian life, then I'll have a big house and a beautiful wife. But we need to remember the context here. The context is that Joshua is committing his will to God's will. God, Joshua is committing his greatest hope to the, to the plans and purposes of of God. This isn't Joshua pursuing his own small little hopes and dreams. This is, um, this is Joshua's personal hopes and dreams being wrapped up in God's plans and purposes for this world and for his life and for God's people. And so success for Joshua is, is no longer defined by getting what Joshua selfishly wants. Success and prosperity is defined by God's will coming to pass in his life. should remind us of Jesus' words. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God is saying that our character is important. We are to root our, our hope in God's will. We are to root our habits in God's ways. And when we do these things, we can be strong and courageous in how we live our life for the Lord and for his plans for us and for his people. And we can be confident that we will have success. Now, gone through all of this without really giving a whole lot of application, right? You know? uh, and I've kind of been saving it for the end. Because I, I purposely want us to, to consider Joshua uh, over and against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, when, you're, when we read the Old Testament... There's a proper way in which we are to read it. We are, we are to read it through the lens of, of Jesus Christ and, and the cross of Christ. Um, if, if you read the Old Testament, if you look at it kind of like a, a magnifying glass, it, 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 at its focus is, is the coming Messiah, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so when we, when we read back into the Old Testament, we can't, we can't just like jump over Jesus, right? We've got to read the Old Testament with Jesus in mind and... What we see in the Old Testament is that there's a lot of um, things that prefigure or, or think people who are types of Christ to come. For instance, King David was a type of Christ 
to come. Jesus is the, the great ruler king that, that David points to humanity needing. Now, Joshua is a type of Christ in a, in a number of ways. First, the name alone. Joshua in, in the Hebrew is Yeshua, right? Um, and Moses gave Joshua that name. Part of that, it was Hosea was his name. And, and, and Joshua, uh, Joshua was given the name Yeshua. That's what it is in the Hebrew. And remember, Jesus was given a name. The angel of the Lord came to Joseph and he said, you know, the woman will bear a son and you shall call his name and Yeshua. I mean, at least that's what it would have been in, in the language of the day. But we get Jesus because we've got an English word of a Greek word that is a translation of a Hebrew word. So, uh, you know, so what does that say? Yeshua, Yeshua. They have the same name. Jesus' name is Joshua. The similarities don't end there. Uh, there's the command. You know, instead of going into the land, Jesus has a great overarching command from God to, 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 to arise, go to earth, defeat sin and death and evil, and deliver my people into my kingdom of grace. That's God's command for his son. That's what Jesus entered this world to do. And then third, we see that everywhere where Jesus walked on earth, God the Father was with him, even in his most difficult hours. If you remember in John 16, Jesus said this, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you all will be scattered, each one to his own home, and you will leave me alone. But then he says, Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Fourth, there's the, the character of Jesus. Unlike any other human being ever, Jesus lived fully for the will of God and walked in the ways of God. Regarding the will of God, check this out. There was, right after the incident with the Samaritan woman at the well and, and the disciples had gone off to the village to, to get some food and, and they came back and they're like, you know, Jesus, you hungry? We got some food. And Jesus is like, no, I got a sandwich already. Um, not exactly. But Jesus says, I, I'm not hungry. I've got food that you know nothing about. And they're scratching their heads. They're going, man, he must have something. And here's what Jesus said. It's an amazing statement. He said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Have you ever noticed that when you go on vacation, everything seems to center around the next meal? You wake up in the morning and you're like, well, should we eat at the hotel or should we find a restaurant? And by then it's like 11 o'clock when you're done. It's like, well, what are we going to do for lunch, you know? And then, and then you have lunch and then it's like, well, we can't go there because we've got dinner reservations at 6. So we just got to hang out here until dinner time. It's right, isn't it? Everything centers around the meal. My friends, in a sense, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when, when I wake up in the morning, my breakfast is to do the will of my Father in heaven. I feed on that. And when I'm done, I feed on the will of God. And all day long, my last meal of the day is to feed on the will of God. Now, honestly, I can't think of a single day in my life where I've lived that way. Oh, that, that my, my day would be filled with me feeding on God's will for, for me and, and, and living here 
on this planet. But what we see in Jesus is that his, his, his food was to do his Father's will. It sustained him. It nourished him. It was, he was excited about the next meal. <laughs> oh, that we would be that way. But also with the ways of God. Jesus was committed to the ways of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus perfectly, perfectly was committed to the will of God and to the way of God, which produced strength and courage and success. How successful was Jesus as compared to Joshua? Well, we know how much we need the second Joshua when we see the failings of the first Joshua and the people he led. How did things go for them? What we do see is God fulfilled all, the, all of his bargain. God fully fulfilled his promise, but the people fell short. You know, I know it's not really possible to cash part of a check, right? I, mean, I don't think you can do that. Have you got any bankers in the house? I don't think so. Um, but, but if it were possible... Joshua and the people, they didn't fully cash the check. Though they had times of strength and courage, there were times when they doubted. And though God offered a huge parcel of land, huge parcel of land, they settled for less. Literally, pun intended, they settled for less. There were days when they drugged their feet. They didn't drive out all the nations that God had commanded them. In time, the people became influenced by the foreign people and their gods. In time, the people abandoned God himself. Joshua could not deliver perfect, complete, total success, which points us to the need of the greater Joshua, that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God said to his son, Son, I want you to go to earth, take on human skin. And redeem my people from their sin and bring them into my eternal kingdom. I'm giving it to them. It's a gift. But it's a gift that we've got to take and accept and receive. Some of you here need to receive that gift. The gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Thankfully, Jesus didn't try to cash part of the check. He cashed it all. He gave his life. Even when things looked fearful, he went to the cross. He secured the gift for us. He is the one who went into the foreign land. And he didn't fight human evil. He he fought the actual source of all evil itself. He fought Satan and defeated him. And he didn't just cleanse the land. He did far more than that. He cleansed the souls of all who trust in him. Securing for us what we could never accomplish on our own. Jesus was strong and courageous for us. He faced terror of the cross, and and though it was frightening, he he stood and entered into the dark land for us. So who we are today is a result of the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. We have been delivered from the kingdom of sin and delivered into his promised land, his eternal kingdom. And you know what? We lifted not a finger. He did all the work. What can we learn today? Well, we can learn from Joshua, but he's no longer the leader of God's people. Jesus is now and forever will be our leader. And as the Bible describes, he is the head and and we are his body, the church. And today, you know, the the people of God are no, no longer gathered into one nation, but we're scattered about the world. And Jesus, as our head, has a command for us still. 
a command for which we must be strong and courageous to fulfill, a command that we must come to prioritize in our life as God's will for us, a command that must be our daily food. And what is that, what is that command? Earlier, Lynn read from it's the Great Command, the Great Commission. It was shortly after Jesus died and rose from the grave, and, and right before he ascended up into heaven, he gave a command to his disciples and to us. This is one of those multi-generational long plans where God is patient to see it unfold. And he said to the loving remaining disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Do you see the similarities with Joshua? Get up and go. Move out, disciples. <laughs> this whole world will, will, will experience the, the grace of God, but we must go out and do this. Do you want to do God's will? I think you do. What is God's will? God's will is that we would know Christ and make him known. We know him in our own lives, but we share Christ with other people. And that we would lead people to Christ and train them up, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And when we commit to God's will and to God's ways, we can be sure that God will be with us. Jesus himself said he will be with us. What did he say? He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christian, you are not alone. God is with you. He has poured out his spirit upon you. So we are to be strong and courageous as we seek to, to live for, for his will, to wrap up our lives in his plan for this universe, to, to, to have all of our small hopes and dreams align with his big hopes and dreams, and that we would go out uh, to our neighborhoods, to our schools, to, to our, our friends in our community and, and make Christ known to him. And you know what? We're actually, it's kind of a scary thing, but really... What did we not learn in this passage? We learned that when we seek to do God's will according to his ways, we, we are to be confident because he will help us be successful. He is the one who works these things out for his people. So may we be strong and courageous. And may we know that as we do this, Jesus' promise is true, that he will be with us always until the end of the age. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for... This beautiful passage shows us that you are a God who works over multiple generations to bring about your plan, that you call to yourself a people, a people that you do not leave alone, a people who see you as not just as God up there, but God down here in your people through your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we thank you for living the life we should have and dying in our place. And you've totally fulfilled the law so that we may walk in the grace that you give us. May we be encouraged and empowered by that truth this morning. Amen.